Welcome to Biotalk. My name is Andy Meyerson, a managing director at Locust Walk, and you're listening to Biotalk, our podcast for biotech dealmakers. On May 9th, Locust Walk is hosting the RNA Innovation Conference, a virtual one-day investor and partner conference exploring innovations in RNA research and development. The event will showcase cutting-edge science, industry trends, and clinical value opportunities in this innovative sector. Ahead of the conference, we wanted to sit down with some of the notable players utilizing RNA in their drug development and highlight novel platforms and approaches that are coming to the forefront of biotech and the future of these new modalities of medicines. Today, I'm speaking with one of my favorite people in biotech. Andrew Allen is co-founder, president, CEO, and board member of Bridgestone Bio, a publicly traded company identifying novel antigens and developing potent RNA-based immunotherapy vaccines against these antigens for oncology and infectious diseases. Previous to Gritstone, Dr. Allen co-founded Clovis Oncology, where he served as chief medical officer. He was chief medical officer at Farmion Corporation and also served in clinical development leadership roles at Chiron Corporation and Abbott Laboratories, in addition to working at McKinsey and Company. He currently serves on the board of directors of public company TCR Squared Therapeutics and private companies Revitope Oncology and Verge Genomics. He previously served on the board of directors of CR Oncology, Epizyme, and Cell Design Labs, all of which were required. Welcome to Biotech, Andrew. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. All right, let's dive in. So from your background, you can tell that you've been directly involved in a number of successfully developed drugs, which includes Rebraca and Vidaza, and also a leader in multiple acquired biotech companies, including very recently announced TCR Squared. Plus, there's still great things to come at Gritstone, where you have several ongoing clinical trials with some near-term readouts. You've already established a distinguished career in biotech, and I know you aren't stopping anytime soon, but it does give you a really good perspective on the state of the industry. Right now, we're certainly in a challenging time for emerging biotech, but this also isn't the first time things have seemed dour. Briefly, what is your perspective for how a CEO should be thinking about the current environment based on your previous experience with these types of down cycles? Yeah, it's not the most fun time in our industry, is it? But I think the, the principles are fairly straightforward. Um, but as is often the case, it's easy to articulate principles when times are good. It's harder to follow them when times are hard because there are lots of uh, distractions um, uh, and things trying to tempt you in the wrong direction. I think at times like this, you have to just focus in on your science uh, and deliver clinical data. And that's really the key of this. I think our, you know, as a biotech company, I sometimes characterize our role as being to convert investor capital into high quality clinical data, not necessarily positive data. Obviously, we hope for positive data, but high quality data. You've designed a great experiment and you've executed it well and the data are reliable. Hopefully there will be positive data, but even if not, you've learned something meaningful by definition if you follow those principles. So if that's our job, then at times like this, you, you just have to do it efficiently. So you eliminate distractions if necessary. You have to focus the company on generating those data as quickly uh, as possible because it's data that you're all about. And if the data are good, then obviously you'll be able to raise more capital. And we've seen that uh, positive data have been followed by massive follow-on raises in our sector because there's still a ton of capital in biotech looking for a home. 
And the best home they can find right now for a real growth opportunity, obviously, is in a small company, low enterprise value, maybe even negative EV that has positive data that you can now build from. So I think that it's that simple. I think focus on delivering your high quality clinical data as efficiently as possible and withstand distractions. Mm -hmm. But one thing I would say is don't don't be sort of seduced into um, cutting too much and extending the experiment because that sometimes is a temptation um, of people. They say, well, let's just reduce our burn to some synthetic number, which actually means it'll take you longer to get to data. That means you're less efficient. And that's a bad idea. When we don't exist in order to draw paychecks for as long as possible. That's what extending the runway sometimes kind of means. We exist to convert investor capital to high quality data and doing that as efficiently as possible. Very interesting. And then I guess one other question that I have for you before we move on to uh, to Kristen specifically. Um, you've been involved in the last two years alone, right, in acquisitions for Sierra Oncology, Epizyme, and now TCR Squared. Each of those had a different rationale behind why those deals were actually concluded. And so as a CEO, execution obviously is highly, highly important, but how do you think about creative deal making at a time like this? And how does a, a biotech CEO possibly want to think through in addition to execution and really striving towards that data to make sure you're not missing out on an opportunity elsewhere. Yeah, they, they all have very different uh, drivers, as you say. And I think, you know, there's there's therefore no simple rule except mm -hmm. just to always be thinking about what makes sense for your shareholders uh, and for your products. And it's not a coincidence, of course, that many companies I work in are, are oncology based, but mm -hmm. oncology has transformed in the 20 or so years since I've been working in the field. You know, I began... Uh, in oncology in around 99 at McKinsey, when oncology was a fringe discipline um, that was obviously going to be the, uh, the the birthplace of many new therapeutics, leveraging genomic informed drug discovery. So back in the late 90s, obviously, the Human Genome Project was coming to its conclusion. We were about to sequence the first full human genome. And it was clear that genomics was going to transform the way in which we uh, discovered new targets and then new drugs. Monoclonal antibodies were still a new class at that point. There were very few approved. Um, and, and everyone could everyone could smell that change was, was imminent. And it was clear that the therapeutic area that could embrace change and accept risk most readily would be oncology, where the stakes are so high and patients typically are looking at uh, an outcome of guaranteed death from disease and therefore they're prepared to take risks um, and risk was obviously there was a lot of risk back then we just, there was a lot of novelty in everything we were doing so oncology suddenly became uh, a focus for many companies uh, including of course big big pharma companies but early on you know i think about farmian for example where where you know we developed the first epigenetic drug videza and secured its approval in the us and europe you know, there we had to kind of do a lot of market education, physician education around the disease. It wasn't just that, it, you know, there weren't very many drugs. There were no drugs and it wasn't even really considered by many people to be an intrinsic disease. Um, and so it was just this basic education. And then you were launching the first drug, the only in class, the only in disease drug which is completely different from today, where now, of course, so many tumors have multiple lines of approved therapeutics uh, and development and commercialization is, is profoundly more challenging. We've learned a lot more, mm -hmm. but the bar is just a lot higher. And commercialization in particular has become 
much more challenging. And, and of course, ultimately, that really, I think, led to the Epizyme and the Sierra transactions. Um, Epizyme was trying to launch a first-in-class, only-in-class product, but do it into a fairly um, competitive disease area of follicular lymphoma uh, during the pandemic. And that's a really hard thing to do because there are lots of alternatives and the education was really hard to deliver when you couldn't actually see physicians, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a particular circumstance. Sierra was a little more straightforward, which was we had this beautiful drug that, um, you know, I'd followed actually for a long time when she took a look at this when I was at Clovis and uh, uh, it was developed by YM Biosciences. So it was a JAK inhibitor that, that sort of acted somewhat like ruxolitinib, but had this additional property that no one really understood, but it seemed to spare the red cell lineage. In other words, you could treat the, uh, the large spleen associated with myelofibrosis, but without necessarily exacerbating the anemia, which is inherent to that disease. So it was a really attractive profile. Gilead ended up buying YAM. They figured out the mechanism, uh, but, but they ran a couple of trials um, that, that may have had some design flaws. And there was a beautiful arbitrage opportunity that Sierra seized upon. Um, funnily enough, the, the old YM team was then uh, running Sierra. So they knew this asset incredibly well. And an opportunity came to, to reacquire it from Gilead uh, and then develop it in a single laser-like um, trial, you know, pre-discussed with the FDA, with a very high confidence that it was going to work. Uh, and in fact, the greatest risk of that pivotal trial was that we didn't really understand the control arm. We actually knew pretty well how the test arm was going to behave. We didn't really know much about the control because it had never been studied in a big study. Um, but, you know, the risk was low. Uh, high quality syndicate came in and it was it was then uh, prosecuted in a very efficient fashion, highly capital efficient. Um, and obviously we ended up with uh, very nice data that, that led to the GSK acquisition. So again, very different set of circumstances, but I think somewhat driven by commercialization once more, um, that pharma generally is happy to pay to get an asset that they can commercialize efficiently because of all of their synergies. Um, and as a biotech, it's really hard to build that commercial infrastructure um, for a single asset. It's an inefficient system. If you've got you know a whole portfolio of commercial products you are just so much more efficient at commercializing than a company that has one and that matters these days around of where there's greater pressure on pricing so i think you know this evolution will continue um oncology as i say is 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 a very different place now than than it was 20 years ago and yeah you know, i'm at verge genomics working in neuroscience which i think is now where oncology was back then where we're having all these conversations about biomarkers, about neurofilament light as a biomarker for registration. And there's an advisory committee for Tofacin coming up you know, mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in ALS, which will be super interesting. But there's a little sense of deja vu for those of us who've been doing oncology. But the commercialization is similar, right? It's, a, it's an open market there, you know, very few approved drugs, et cetera. So our industry is continuing to evolve in fascinating ways. And it's great to be part of it, to be honest. Yeah. It, it's funny you bring up CNS with Verge because I think we're seeing a lot of the same things that CNS really is almost going through a bit of a renaissance in mm -hmm. terms of the attention of modality approaches, ways of differentiating disease, subtyping disease, et cetera. Very similar to what we saw with what happened in precision oncology. Yep. And so, totally, you know, those, totally the programs agree. are early and we're going to see what happens. But, uh, <laughs> but CNS is, is a different gig. And obviously Amelix is now, yep. everyone's watching Amelix closely. Um, Super interesting to see see how they perform, and then uh, and Verge obviously has a beautiful technology, great team. Uh, it's really fun being part of that uh, company and watching them uh, pursuing these new opportunities in this um, pretty you know white white space. In truth, yeah, no, absolutely. So turning maybe to Gritstone for a bit, 
given your experience, I mean, you're an experienced drug developer, you've been a longtime corporate leader. When you think back to when the company was first forming, what was it about the company that convinced you that it was working in something differentiated and that it was worthy of being a company? So even going back, when you want to start a company, how do you know that the yeah. company is actually worth the effort? Yeah, that's, that is a great question. So I'll be as succinct as I can, but it, yeah. um, there's a lot to that, obviously. If we, you know, companies are built by individuals who have their own motivations. Uh, so that's, I think, the first thing to say. And I have a particular motivation, obviously. You know, I was a practicing clinician for a decade. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals with patients, with people dying. I know what that looks and feels like. Um, and we all do, of course, because of our families and because, you know, none of us is immortal. Um, I loved immunology. And when I began in, uh, in, in cancer drug development, it was, um, well, one of my early jobs was at Chiron. This was in the early 2000s. Uh, I was um, head of drug development, head of medical affairs for oncology. And we actually had Proleukin, which was the first cancer immunotherapy developed by Steve Rosenberg and his uh, colleagues, many of whom, of course, we all know now, their household names, pretty much, Jed Walchok, Jeff Weber, Patrick Hu, etc. These guys all went through the Rosenberg College, as it were, at, at the NCI in the surgery branch, learning about IL-2 and how to use it and how effective it was. And, and I'm mentioning this because we cured people with metastatic disease. It was about 4% thereabouts of people with metastatic melanoma and kidney cancer were cured, durable responses such that 20 years later, patients, are, you know, they're not a patient anymore. They're a healthy individual walking around with just a distant memory of time on an ICU getting vascular leak syndrome from high dose IL-2. But we saw the power of immunotherapy. The problem was we didn't really understand much about it. And, you know, as I arrived at Chiron, I was all sort of, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed as it were. And I arrived asking, you know, where are the where are the uh, samples that we've been collecting to analyze and so on and so forth. And we had not, we had nothing and we didn't have sensible hypotheses. I mean, it was just, it was phenomenology. And so Karen was acquired by Novartis and I, I made the decision that, you know, I'm not an academic. Academics continue to keep the torch blazing. And I'm profoundly grateful that they did. And it was hard because, I mean, you may not remember this, but back then the targeted therapeutics people used to somewhat ridicule the, immuno-oncologists because you know it didn't really work right all the vaccines all the cytokines there was nothing working and the targeted therapeutic guys were delivering beautiful waterfall charts um it, you know that was that was easy living as it were so but the academics kept pursuing this but i as a drug developer my view was like we just don't understand this well enough any any company that i might form or join focused on immuno-oncology in 2005 is statistically going to fail um, and therefore, let's not do that because I can't handicap it. I don't know enough to be able to in any way form a sensible idea as to how it won't fail. It'll just be hope. So I turned to what was then the very new field of targeted therapeutics. And it was it was a great time because obviously this notion of EGFR mutations and drugs that target those mutations, it was rational. It was predictable. Um, you know, there were still a few surprises. You know, why did PI3K uh, inhibitors not work quite as well as they did in, in preclinical models? You know, remains like an interesting question. You know, there are drivers. Seems like there are super drivers. Anyway. That was kind of that was the, the business I got into, and it was it was good. It was uh, it was a really fun and interesting time. However, we didn't cure people, and over the years, as a chief medical officer in those companies, 
you're the you're at the sharp end where the physician comes to you and says patients now developed a recurrent lesion they've been doing great for a year you've given this you know young uh, woman with mutant EGFR metastatic lung cancer a year of great high quality life but she's now developed a recurrence or the young woman with a germline BRCA mutation and a young family did great on rucaparib the PARP inhibitor but now she's developed a CNS recurrence and it's just sobering that we weren't as successful as we wanted to be and you know early on Gleevec in CML had demonstrated such durable benefit that we obviously hoped that we would see that mapping across the solid tumors but it just doesn't we get acquired resistance and no one's cured and for cure you just go back to immunotherapy that's how we cure people with metastatic disease so my mind shifted to I want to get back to immunotherapy obviously this was now 2014 um, PD-1 first one had been approved uh, it was clear that this you know we've made real progress but what wasn't clear was what was the next PD-1? How you how are you going to build on that foundation? And I, I did think about building a company that would take, you know, other T-cell surface checkpoint regulators. It, it would have been easy to do, but you kind of knew the playbook, right? It would be, we'll take this T-cell surface protein. It could be anything like LAG3, TIM3, Gitter, uh, Vista, you know, there's lots of different candidates. Um, but again, we don't have really good models. And so you'd have essentially done the following. I'll make an antibody that's the relevant agonist or antagonist. It'll take me three years. I'll get the money. That'll be fine because everyone's excited by this. Then we'll go into a monotherapy phase one dose escalation study. It'll take us two years and we won't see much in the way of monotherapy activity. And then everyone will kind of hate me, but it'll be okay because I'll probably have enough capital to do the randomized study that'll take another three years uh, in melanoma, and then maybe I'll see something, but statistically, again, I probably won't. I mean, that's what will, that's, that was the likely outcome. And I couldn't, again, get away from that being the likely outcome. So I decided not to do that and to just keep reading and waiting for something that, that struck me. And at the, in the end of 2014, Tim Chan, Naya Rizvi and colleagues, Alex Snyder at Memorial Sloan Kettering published this seminal paper in the New England Journal suggesting that tumor neoantigens were the key targets for T-cells in patients responding to, to checkpoint inhibitors. And Naya, the first author science paper in lung cancer in Pembro patients a few months later. And so um, that was, to me, that was the um, innovation catalyst, mm -hmm. to use that jargon term, that led to me wanting to build Gritstone. Because if you believe in immunotherapy of cancer as the way to cure people with metastatic disease, understanding the nature of the antigens was the necessary next step that's what they they generated and then we could exploit that in principle to take that insight into the large number of patients with cold solid tumors who don't respond to checkpoint inhibitors which is most people and we think that the reason they don't respond in part is because they don't have t-cells so okay now you have a simple therapeutic hypothesis to build a company on we will develop an ability to sequence a tumor identify which of the mutations create neoantigens and then deliver select neoantigens in a potent vaccine that drives strong t-cell responses that will synergize with pd1 antibodies and then hopefully tumors will shrink patients will respond life will be extended everybody's happy that's the basic idea that we founded the company on and it's still the core idea at this company it's, it's interesting because the company even as you described it just then has certainly changed a lot since 2015. Uh, i mean i remember meeting matt hallrick your cbo shortly after you closed your series a and we were discussing pretty openly 
what would be a good delivery vehicle for identified antigens, right? So um, identify these antigens, how do we actually get them to patients in a way that's going to immediately impact their immune systems in the way that you just described? And now you have a proprietary, potentially best-in-class, self-amplifying mRNA can vaccine platform. Uh, the company started purely focused on oncology, and now you're equally focused within infectious disease. And you've even changed the name of the company to help reflect this new reality in terms of where you're focusing your attention. And so how would you describe the evolution of the company and what's sort of coming next in terms of as you think about how does a biotech continue to grow and evolve? Um, and then after that, I'd love to dive into the actual specifics. Yeah, so you know, biotech companies form, you know, I can simplify into, there are two different groups. Yeah. There are those that have a technology that they're trying to develop, um, and then they're looking for applications of the technology. And obviously, Moderna and BioNTech are the two relevant in this space, right? They had an mRNA platform, and they were doing sort of mRNA therapeutics, vaccines, all kinds of different approaches. But the answer for them was always mRNA. So that's one form of company. And then there's companies like us that are formed to solve a specific problem that's presented itself. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as I described it, that's the genesis of Gridstone. And so it has pros and cons, right? The, the, the disadvantage is it's going to take you longer because you don't have anything in hand when you start the company. You've got to go find it. The benefit potentially is that you end up with a better solution to the problem because you are customized, you're custom built. Um, it's like you know, custom software versus off-the-shelf software, right? We all know the, the differences of those two. Um, and so we didn't have a vaccine platform. We didn't have a way to predict new engines. We had to build it all from scratch, which takes time and money. But then you end up with good answers. And so from a T-cell perspective, this is why we chose self-amplifying mRNA. We, we looked at the data um, around mRNA and, you know, back back in, this was like in 15, there used to be an mRNA meeting that was small. It used to alternate between uh, Boston and Berlin. And the first one I went to was in Berlin and, you know, Stefan is there and Uga's there. And it's, you know, there's like a hundred people in the room. It's not a very big meeting, but it's obviously very interesting looking at the data. And from a CD8 T-cell perspective, um, mRNA is not a super potent uh, vector from a CD8 induction perspective, from a priming perspective. And the question was, could you, could you do any better? Mm. And so uh, self-amplifying mRNA is fundamentally different because it generates um, more antigen uh, because of the replication of RNA. So you get persistence of antigen for a much longer period of time that may be important when it comes to immunological priming. You also get greater activation of innate sensors that are obviously key to taking an antigen, providing it in the context of a so-called danger signal, which is what then drives your adaptive immune system to mount the adaptive immune response of B cells and antibodies. Mm -hmm. And mRNA clearly is beautiful for antibodies, very good for CD4s, but a little bit softer on CD8s. And so our hypothesis was that self-amplifying because of this differential activation of the innate immune system might drive a stronger CD8 uh, response. And, and that, that was the genesis of that notion. Uh, and obviously we've continued to prosecute it ever since. That's great. So fundamentally to Gritstone, there are two key aspects to the platform, which you've already highlighted. There's the antigen identification called EDGE, and then there's the immunogenic vaccine platform they just described uh, that has the self-amplifying RNA, and then you also have the CHAD delivery system as well. Um, Focusing, I guess, a little bit on edge, that's foundational to the concept of a personalized cancer vaccine? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, what, um, what, what sure. is, I, guess, I guess the question really is, 
We're starting to see a lot more buzz around personalized cancer vaccines as these continue to, to progress. For a while, they were super busy, and then people sort of became lukewarm to them, and now suddenly they're exciting again. And so how is it that EDGE helps contribute to that for, for Gritstone, and why do you think that um, overall this is going to generate buzzworthy type data? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we cannot be oriented towards buzz because right. buzz moves, and yep. um, uh, at a timeline on a timeline that we can't even begin to match and shouldn't okay. try to match, right? We we, we put focus on science um, and delivering against the science. You have a hypothesis and you test it. That's yep. the way we have to operate. And uh, frankly, the momentum that the investor momentum sometimes is with us and sometimes it's against us. That's just you have to just accept that. Um, so for new engine identification, if you step back, if you believe in cancer immunotherapy, mm -hmm. and I think we all do. Um, then it's never a bad thing to have T cells, particularly killer T cells, CD8 T cells in your tumor that recognize relevant antigens. And as of a few years ago, relevant antigens center stage are these mutated neoantigens. And they make complete sense from an immunological perspective, because yeah. obviously with a vaccine, you're trying to stimulate a T cell response and your T cell repertoire undergoes tolerance when you're a fetus slash neonate, so that any T cell that recognizes a normal self protein and responds uh, aggressively is deleted in the thymus. That is a necessary step for tolerance. And for that reason, neoangians are in immediately attractive because they're not there when tolerance is happening. And so this is the, in the sort of immunological framework that made them so appealing conceptually before we had any data. Yeah. You know, um, and you, I'll give uh, you know, Bob Schreiber gets credit here. He, he articulated this thesis in mouse. Um, and then Tim and Naya picked it up in humans, Steve Rosenberg to some extent as well. And so just from first principles, it all makes great sense. Neoantians are the key. But the question is, how do I find them? And what Steve has shown, Steve Rosenberg from his till data, is that it's a small minority of mutations that create a neoantigen. And so we, we haven't got time to go into details, but right. we decided to build a prediction model and we used human tumors as the training data set. So there's a technique whereby you can identify the short peptides displayed on the surface of tumor cells that are recognized by T cells. And that's the training data. Then we sequence those same samples to get DNA and RNA information. And we use deep learning mathematics to figure out the genomic features that predict whether a particular mutation will or will not be displayed on the cell surface. And doing that well is the, the core requirement of any mm -hmm. personalized cancer vaccine program. So we invested in it starting from the very beginning. I mean, the, the first person we hired was oriented around this problem and we continue to invest very heavily in it because we are not done. You know, there's this large collection of mutated antigens in the regular tumor exome there are many more tumor-specific antigens from other classes of, of proteins or derived from other bits of the genome that we're still figuring out. Mm -hmm. And I think they're going to be great targets. They're often going to be shared. And so off-the-shelf products, I think, are going to continue to improve over time, which is obviously good for everybody because they're cheaper. Um, so I think this field will continue to evolve as we understand more and more about tumor antigens and how to present them to the immune system to drive that immune response. That core biology is with us for the next, I don't know, 50 years. And obviously, Gridstone wants to be a, a major player as, as that field evolves and, and expands. 
so a big part of that, which you just highlighted, is antigen delivery. And we've already spent a little bit of time talking about simplifying RNA platforms, yours in particular. Um, you mentioned BioNTech, you mentioned Moderna, uh, who have more standard traditional mRNA-type platforms that were just leveraged, as we know, for the uh, for the COVID vaccines. As we are starting to think through these various versions of mRNA delivery technologies, particularly within the context of antigen delivery for vaccination, how should our listeners really be thinking through differentiating platforms? What are sort of the key things that likely matter to determine if you actually have a good vaccine platform for delivering these antigens? There's other folks that are working on sample amplifying RNA, for instance. And one of the things that we've heard both from investors and also from some strategic is they don't really know what to look for. And so from your perspective, what actually matters when you're looking towards yeah. these the platforms? Yeah, I think today um, in the field of infectious disease, there is a focus on neutralizing antibodies. Mm-hmm. Right? We've all become familiar with this through, through COVID. I mean, obviously it antedates COVID with influenza, for example, but everyone now knows about this through the, the prism of COVID. Um, and we can see that uh, one of the core challenges with neutralizing antibodies is their Mm half-life, as in how how persistent are they? And with the first wave of COVID vaccines, we get beautiful antibody responses, but they're not very durable. We get a fade, a decay, Mm -hmm. and that demands then boosting, which nobody likes. So persistence of antibody, I think is one core dimension with which or through which to assess different platforms. Uh, and that's RNA, but others, you know, any other platform, you should always be asking, I think, this question. Because, um, you know, these days you're not going to get, you know, into the clinic and, unless you've shown that it is immunogenic, probably in, a, in a, some kind of primate experiment. So fundamentally, as you go into humans, you know it works, you know it makes antibodies. That That's not really at risk in a phase one study. The question is more, um, you know, do I make good good levels in humans? And again, we can generally de-risk that preclinically. But then the key issue, I think, is becoming how durable are they? Um, so that's dimension number one. Dimension number two, uh, I think, is can I multiplex? Because it, it's no secret, obviously, that everybody today is excited about the idea of a single shot that contains multiple different pathogens. So, you know, there's a target product profile, I think, that's been discussed by several of the major players where you have one vaccine that immunizes people over 60 against influenza, SARS-CoV-2 and RSV. And you, there's a couple of other common respiratory pathogens that you could throw in there, right? With um, uh, parainfluenza virus, human metanumovirus. You know, so those five would would probably be ideal because that between them they account for the majority hospital admissions and mortality associated with viral infection in elderly people, which is a common problem. So doing it with a single shot is what we want. But there's some challenges to that, obviously, that multiplexing means I'm delivering lots more antigen. Mm -hmm. And uh, for all of us, can I give more antigen without driving much more reactogenicity, which is the side effects? Um, And and that's a key challenge. Uh, And will different platforms have different immunoreacto ratios, Mm -hmm. right? That's the way... I think about it to use a sort of jargonistic term, immuno meaning immunogenicity, how much antibody do I make? Reacto meaning the side effects, the sore arm, fever, feeling kind of unwell for 24 hours. That's the trade-off. I think it's unlikely there is anything that's free because you know getting a good immune response gives you some side effects. There's just not much getting away from that. The question is, is the benefit worth it? 
Yeah. Uh, and so I, that's the trade-off, the set of trade-offs I make. I mean, look at Shingrix, right? Super successful vaccine. Everybody knows it makes you feel pretty bad for 24 hours, but no one wants shingles. I don't have any alternatives. I'm going to take it. It's a much better deal. I'd rather feel bad for 24 hours, stay in bed watching football on a Saturday for 24 hours versus get shingles. You know, that that's the trade-off we all make. So it's not as simple as I want something that has no reactor. I don't think that's possible. Um, I think it's about the benefit risk and that'll look different for different platforms. And so I think if I've got durable antibodies and I can deliver multiple pathogens, that starts to get really interesting. So those are probably two key dimensions I'd point investors towards. Uh, I'm smiling here, by the way, because you mentioned football on Saturday, which is an EPL thing. So your British are showing. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I should translate that. Sunday football. That's right. That's, it. That's funny. Um, so, and totally makes sense. I mean, maybe shifting a little bit more away from vaccine approaches necessarily, maybe away from Gridstone entirely. One of the things that I really like about you is how well-versed you are broadly across the industry and a lot of things that are being developed by others. And you know, even as we think about RNA and RNA-focused medicines, are there certain things that people have been working on that sort of caught your eye and said, huh, that's, that's an interesting idea and I think that it's a good that thing has legs potentially, uh, whether it's small molecule approaches to RNA, looking more into direct RNA therapeutics. Is, is there something sort of within the RNA medicine sphere outside of mRNA that you've sort of thought, you know what, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the, the, the transduction of cells in vivo is obviously a big uh, area of, of focus right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's super exciting. It's hard. Uh, I, I don't think anyone's sort of close to cracking it in humans yet. Mm -hmm. um, but that, I think, is a very, very interesting uh, idea. So the idea here is that um, I want to modify immune cells um, in the body. Uh, and I can do that by delivering the RNA, which obviously will uh, transduce the cells and lead to expression of protein. I can do that just by administering something intravenously to a patient. So that requires you obviously to have some kind of targeting mechanism. And obviously mm -hmm. people are working on that. Uh, you then need efficient fusion with the target cells. You then need transduction, meaning that the RNA that you deliver into those cells is expressed as a protein. And then a key issue is I want it to be expressed for a, a reasonable amount of time, right? Having something that appears for 24 hours, probably for most applications is not going to be adequate. Yeah. Um, and so those are some of the core challenges. Um, Self-amplifying obviously carries the, this benefit around persistence that may be co-optable into that kind of framework. Mm -hmm. There's some interest in circular RNA, you know, ORNA, Laronde or a couple of new biotechs sort of in that space where circularizing, uh, now I sound American, circularizing <laughs> the, uh, the RNA so that you extend its half-life, but retain its uh, utility as a template for, for translation. That obviously is an interesting idea uh, that may have legs. Uh, the LMP and the targeting aspects, uh, obviously people have been focused on that for a little while and that field is heating up. Uh, lots of people now thinking about different LMPs and different targeting mechanisms. So I think that's, to me, that's probably one of the most interesting areas right now that's new with RNA therapeutics. Something that you brought up in that response right there was actually some modality blending, right? So combining something like a self-amplifying RNA with some of the in vivo cell induction type processes to differentiate the cells, however it is you want to differentiate them. 
Gridzone itself has also just announced a pursuit of a modality blending time trial, given what you're doing with the uh, the NCI, with the cell therapy combined with the, the Slate KRAS program. How do you think about modality blending specifically within RNA type approaches or even more generally? Do you think that's really the way that the industry might be moving? Yeah, I, I actually, I hope so. Um, and I say that because I think for some of the tough diseases that we work on, cancer obviously being one, but infectious disease obviously is another. Um, we, we know that that uh, combination therapeutics are much more effective. Yeah, right? it's it's not a it's not new news that we, you know, when I'm thinking of HIV you know, antiretrovirals, I combine them. And why do I do that? I do that because uh, viruses can evolve around, can mutate around single, very narrow uh, therapeutic attack with a single drug. They find it much harder, of course, to develop synchronous mutations in the same virus or in the case of cancer, same cell that enables simultaneous escape from two or three different modalities and different targets. And so I think combinatorial attack is a theme that we, of course, want to leverage for, mm -hmm. for cancer and for infectious disease. Um, if I come back to cancer, it's why Granite, I think, is a flagship product because we deliver multiple antigens. And we know in cancer, Steve Rosenberg's described this very nicely, that if you put all the immune attack on a single HLA peptide complex, like KRAS, so to be specific, you know, in one of his publications, a G12D KRAS mutation presented by a particular HLA molecule, HLA CO802, led to clinical benefit when the, uh, the therapeutic of TIL was delivered that was mostly focused on that neoantigen. But then the patient uh, developed an escape lesion Mm -hmm. which happily was isolated. So they resected it and the patient then did well subsequently. And in that lesion, guess what? The tumor had, uh, there was a clone that had dropped that HLA-CO802 molecule very specifically, which of course, textbook fashion means that that tumor cell is not presenting that neoantigen, which means yep. now it's immune to those T cells. Thus you have escape. And so that narrow focus is a, is a risk. With Granite, we're delivering 20 candidate neoantigens, of which at least half, I think, are real. And therefore, that's great because you've got multiple lines of attack. With Steve Rosenberg, we're now combining a vaccine that generates T-cells with his cell therapy. So he's now got a whole library of T-cell receptors that recognize different KRAS mutations presented by different HLA molecules. He matches that to the patients that come to him. And now we're gonna combine that therapy with a vaccine that will hopefully stimulate those same T-cells and provide in his term, life support. So that makes good sense, um, but you don't need to stop there, right? If that works, why would you not add a small molecule? Maybe yeah. also a KRAS directed small molecule or do vaccine plus small molecule. I mean, obviously, I've been reading the, the KRAS small molecule literature with, with great interest. Um, it's, you know, this whole notion has been fascinating. And shout out to Kayvon Showcat, you know, who developed the G12C inhibitor concept. Yep. He was building on Nate Gray's work. You know, I'm sitting here in Boston at the minute. And, uh, you know, Nate uh, years ago developed the whole target cysteine with a covalent drug that was for T790M and EGFR, which is obviously has led to, to Grisso uh, and some something we did uh, at Clovis early on. So that whole biology is super interesting. But the recent data with the G G12C inhibitor suggested that the immune response was a key component of benefit associated with that drug, hence the desire to combine it with PD-1, which seems to be a bit tricky for sodoracid, maybe a little bit easier for adagracid. And we'll see some data coming off of that soon. Hopefully we'll see some synergy there. But I was reading the um, the paper from Arati on their G12D inhibitors in cancer discovery recently. Um, 
and again, there's a strong immunologic component to the what the efficacy that they observe. So, you know, combining the, these other KRAS target therapeutics with immunotherapy makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think this multimodality approach is going to make it harder for the targets to mutate and evolve around our therapeutics. Um, so, I, I, I'm using that term orthogonal. So, uh, orthogonal approaches and multi-targeted approaches combined. I think are likely to be key here so yeah bring it on let's let's have more of that <laughs> no absolutely and so andrew really thank you for your time today um i thought this was a fantastic conversation i know i've learned a lot uh, i imagine others will too as as always like i said you're one of my favorite people to talk to because it's so easy to have these types of conversations uh given your knowledge base and also your experience and so really appreciate you coming and sharing both your expertise and also your um your perspectives with us as we do wrap up, I want to highlight, again, Locus Walk's upcoming RNA Innovation Conference, which is being hosted in partnership with Dr. Frank Slack, the director of the Harvard Medical School Initiative for RNA Medicine, and Dr. Phil Zamore, chair of the RNA Therapeutics Institute at UMass Chan Medical School. The virtual one-day investor and partner conference will take place on Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. This event showcases cutting-edge science, industry trends, and high-value opportunities in next-generation RNA, R&D, through keynote speakers, company presentations, and panel discussions. You can find the link to register for the conference in this episode's show notes. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Biotalk. We look forward to continuing a productive dialogue on our next episode. Please share with all your friends and colleagues so we can grow the audience. This is Andy Meyerson for Biotalk, signing off.